great to be in the presence of God's people. But even more than that, it's great to be in the presence of the Lord, isn't it? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read some very familiar verses, but hopefully talk about it in a non-familiar way. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, it is our sincere, spirit-wrought desire that we would honor you as disciples of Jesus. That we would be the kind of disciples of Jesus that reflects and images Jesus to our world and to one another. That the picture of Jesus in us would allow our suffering brother or sister to press on one more day. That the picture of Jesus in us would cause those who are lost in the depths of sin out of sin and into light. That God, it would be a message of hope to a world that so often feels hopeless. I pray, Father, that we would take up and bear the mantle and responsibility that comes with being a disciple of Jesus, to help other disciples of Jesus grow as disciples of Jesus, that we might know Jesus better and love Jesus more and be comforted more deeply by Jesus. Lord, we are your disciples. Whether we are at home or we are in the church today, we are gathered around today for the purpose of hearing something from the lips of the living God. And we ask, oh God, that you would speak to us through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as most of you guys are aware, a year and a half ago, I had a son. Now, I've always been, I feel like, really close to my girls, and I love being a girl dad. But having a son brought with it just this feeling of responsibility that was new to me. Okay, I think in the back of my mind, having the girls and like going all in and spending time with them and having a close relationship with them, in the back of my mind, though, was always, but Megan won't let me mess them up too bad. You know what I mean? Like, like I kind of felt like that I could love on them and snuggle them and play with them and take them out of the woods and do camping trips and daddy dates and do all of that. But they're girls, and Megan's really good at being a woman and a woman of God and being kindness. And, like, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, she really is going to make sure that I don't mess them up. And now there's a boy. You know what I'm saying? And I feel this responsibility. I've got to teach him how to fish and like how to gut a deer and like what it means to be a husband and how to treat a woman and what a spiritual leader is supposed to look like and all of those things that are enveloped in what I believe to be a biblical understanding of manhood encompasses. And if I'm honest with you, it intimidates me a little bit. I'm overwhelmed by it a little bit. I I feel like that I, there are so many things that I need to be able to teach him, and I, I just don't want to mess it up. I just don't want to drop the ball on this. And, and, and the truth is, I feel a little bit overwhelmed because I feel like I still have a lot to learn. So I have so much to teach him, 
And yet at the same time, I'm at a place in my life where I feel like I still have way more to learn than it is that I know. I'm in that unique place in life where on one hand, I'm a father, and on the other hand, I'm a son. You know what I'm saying? On on one hand, I have the responsibility to teach my son what it means to be a man. That I have to teach my son what it means to chase after Jesus. That I have to teach my son what it means to walk against the current and to stand out as a light in the midst of the darkness. But on the other hand, I'm a young man learning how to be a man from my dad still. I still have a lot that I need to learn about what manhood entails on what it means to be there for your family and be a patriarch for your family and be a leader for your family and be an example for your family. And so I'm I'm in this strange middle ground. And what I think is interesting is we see that exact same dynamic coming up in the Great Commission. That in the Great Commission, we see a dynamic in play in which we are both to be disciples and to make disciples. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So it says there in verse, well, sorry about that. It says there in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them. Now, who is them? Them is the disciples, right? The them he's referring to. So Jesus is here and he's talking with his disciples after his resurrection, before he ascends up to heaven. And he's, he's really giving them his marching orders and he's explaining to them what he expects of them. And he's giving them this, this commissioning, this command on what they are to do and what they are to expend their lives and their energy and their resources doing them. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple, if we were to look at the very most basic definition is a learner. The word literally translates disciple equals learner. That's what it is. So he's talking to them, his learners, those people that have been walking with Jesus and and seeking Jesus and learning from Jesus and watching Jesus and listening to Jesus and obeying Jesus. And so Jesus is here and he's talking to them, the disciples, his learners, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Make what? More learners. Make more learners. I have been raising you up as learners. I have been training you as learners. I have been been leading an example for you as learners. And now I have a task for you. Now I have a mission for you. Now I have something that I've been preparing you for the whole time that you've been with me. And what is that? That you would go and duplicate this process. That you yourself would go, go to the ends of the earth, go to all nations, go to all peoples, go to all tribes, and there make more learners, make more disciples. How are we to do that, Jesus? How are we to do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's how we really get to it right here. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see this here? You are disciples of Jesus. You are learners from Jesus. You are seekers of Jesus. You are observers of Jesus. You are followers of Jesus. And you are teachers of Jesus. You are teachers. You are learners. And at the same time, you are teachers. It is inherent in the very nature of who God has called you to be and what Jesus is commanding you to be. And that's why in our discipleship process, connect, disciple, go. Disciple is both a noun and a verb. 
that you are to be a disciple of Jesus. You are to be a lifelong learner of Jesus, a lifelong follower of Jesus, a lifelong obeyer of Jesus. But as a learner, as a follower, as an obeyer, you, are, you must inherently to obey Jesus, teach others about Jesus. Be a teacher of Jesus. You see, this verse, the beginning of verse 20, that says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, I would propose to you is the most neglected component of the Great Commission. We hear sermons on going, don't we? We hear sermons on baptizing, don't we? We hear sermons on making disciples, don't we? We even hear sermons on the back part of I am with you always to the end of the age. But when do we hear sermons on teaching them to obey and observe and to keep all that I have commanded you? Why is that? It's easier to count hands at a rally. It's easier to count decisions written down on a card than it is to expend your life teaching others what it means to follow and obey Jesus. It's hard. It's time-consuming. It's gut-wrenching. It's a process that brings frustration and difficulty and, and, and sadness and disappointment into your life. It's a process in which you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail. And while failing, like parenting, while you keep messing up, the hope is that you don't mess up the children. You don't mess up the disciples along the way. You're injected into the midst of this process. But if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, if you are going to obey Jesus, you have to be a teacher of Jesus because Jesus commanded you to do it. Because Jesus commanded you to do it. And so when we talk about connect, disciple, go, when we use the word disciple, we're using that in that two-dimensional sense. You are a disciple. And because you are a disciple, you must make disciples. And to make disciples, you cannot just raise, uh, count people that raise their hand and say they want to follow Jesus or right, see the number of people that come into your Sunday school class. It can't just be the number of people that sit beside you on the road. It has to be who are you teaching? Who are you teaching to follow Jesus? Jesus. See, I think it's in this, this beginning part of verse 20 that we really learn the nature of discipleship and what discipleship is supposed to look like. And so I want us to really lock in just on that phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you so that we can understand what it means and how that's supposed to be reflected and applied and obeyed in our own lives. First, I want you to see that it means that we should teach how Jesus taught. We should teach how Jesus taught. So when it says they're teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, we ought to stop and ask, what in the world does it mean to teach? What is Jesus talking about when he tells us to teach? How is it that we are to go about teaching other people that they are to be followers and obeyers and, and keepers of the words that Jesus has commanded? How are we supposed to? To do that. Now, I want you to imagine and think of the context into which Jesus is teaching this. This is at the culmination of more than three years that Jesus himself has personally spent with these disciples that he's talking to. Jesus has spent more than three years with them, living life with them, praying with them, pulling them out of messes, correcting them, rebuking them, praying with them, teaching them, giving an example to them, deploying them over and over throughout his life. And so it seems totally implausible, totally implausible that here what Jesus is saying is to have an eight-week Wednesday night class so that they can be disciples. It seems totally implausible that what Jesus is saying here, when he says, teach them all that I have commanded you, to instruct them to show up for 45 minutes on Sunday before the sermon to be a part of a group. 
It seems implausible that what he is saying is only come and, and preach a sermon or hear a sermon preached. That Jesus is saying something much broader than that. That Jesus has to be instructing his disciples to go and to teach their disciples in the same way that Jesus taught them. That's the only rational explanation. It's the only plausible answer. That what Jesus is instructing his disciples to do is to not just make disciples of Jesus, but to make disciples of Jesus by utilizing the method of Jesus, in the way of Jesus. To do it the same way that Jesus did it. So how did Jesus make disciples? How did Jesus go about teaching his disciples? Well, first, we see that Jesus taught by instruction, don't we? If you read, if in fact, you, you look here, and what is Jesus doing? He's instructing his disciples on the nature of the mission that's at hand. You can go and you can think about the Sermon on the Mount, and you have all of the disciples there gathered around Jesus while Jesus exposits really the Old Testament and the role that he now plays in the fulfillment of the, of the law and, and the righteousness that, that is greater than the Pharisees that's going to be required of his disciples. And so he, he gathers them around in a classroom of types so that he can instruct them on what they're supposed to do. You can think about John chapter 4 when Jesus makes a disciple out of the woman at the well. And he teaches her on the nature of true worship, being both in spirit and in truth. And how it is not on this mountain or in that mountain. But it is in the one that Christ has, that God has sent, the Son of God himself. You can think about how Jesus would often, uh, after rebuking the Pharisees, pull his disciples away and explain the nature and reason behind the rebuke. Or in Matthew chapter 13, as Jesus is teaching in parables and how he would pull his disciples aside and explain the nature of that parable and what he meant by it. That there must be time in the classroom. There must be time in the instruction. It's helpful for the pilot to understand the physics behind the reason that the wings lift off of the ground. It's important for us to understand the abstracts of the faith and to zoom out and for someone to teach us exactly the big picture of all the things that are fitting together. We need the time in the classroom. The difference between us and Jesus is that Jesus doesn't stay there. Yes, Jesus' teaching method requires instruction. Yes, it includes him bringing and teaching and lecturing and preaching. But it includes more than that. And where Jesus sees that as the entryway to instruction and the entryway to teaching, we often see it as the means and ends in and of itself. As long as our classrooms are full, as long as our sanctuaries are full, we are satisfied in some way that we are teaching other people to follow Jesus. But that is only the first dimension. That is only the entry point into a life of discipleship with Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just teach with instruction. Jesus taught by illustration. Now, I don't mean by that that Jesus always had the most clever or brilliant illustrations uh, and object lessons. Certainly, I believe Jesus to be the greatest illustrator in the history of preachers and teachers. I would love to learn his ability to be able to take the things that are around him and use those to illustrate. But what I mean primarily by that is that Jesus is the clearest example, that he illustrates what he teaches by the way that he lives. That Jesus didn't just teach his disciples to uh, turn the other cheek when someone struck them. Jesus himself turned the other cheek. That Jesus didn't just command his disciples and instruct and teach the abstracts of forgiving somebody that's hurt you. Jesus himself forgave the people that hurt him. Jesus didn't teach them theoretically what it meant to endure persecution. Jesus set for them an example going through all of their own sufferings and all of their own weaknesses and all of their own hardships, showing what it means to bear witness to the living God in the midst of persecution, pain, and suffering. 
That Jesus gave us an example, taking those abstract teachings and principles and showing us how concrete they were in his real life. And that's something that all true teaching must have. True teaching has to be, have close-range examples that show how the truth is practical in everyday life. And so what we need in our church and what we need if we are going to fulfill the, the, the great commission and the way and the, and the interpretation that I believe that Jesus ultimately intended is we need people who won't just read books about marriage with others, but will demonstrate before them what a godly marriage looks like. We need people who won't just teach what godly generosity looks like, but in a faithful and non-ostentatious way will demonstrate and set an example of what godly generosity looks like. We need exemplars of the faith. We need examples that take these principles of forgiveness and hardship and persecution and bring them into everyday life. We need to not just teach them how to suffer well and wrestle with God, but invite them into the midst of our own suffering so that they can see how we suffer with the living God, that what we need is illust- our illustrations among the body of believers living out these principles so that those who are coming after us, those who are believers that are more recent believers, those who are younger believers, those who are believers that have not yet encountered the challenges and trials that we have faced can see in living proof what it means to follow after Jesus in everyday life. Jesus didn't just teach in the classroom. Jesus taught by example, but Jesus didn't just teach by example. Jesus taught by immersion. Jesus taught by immersion. In other words, Jesus taught by, caught by compelling them to put into practice themselves the things that he was teaching. Jesus compelled his disciples not just to listen to him, not just to watch him, but to go and to begin to implement in their own lives what it means to follow after Jesus and apply the teachings of Jesus. I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 10 when you have Jesus and he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. And we have this early deployment of the disciples where they go and he says, your brothers are going to hate you and your dad's probably going to hate you and your neighbors are going to turn on you. And you need to experience what this is like while I'm still here. You need to experience what this is like so that you can begin to understand and wrap your mind around the nature of my mission and then your mission after me. I'm thinking about when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the disciples, they come to him and they say, "Uh, Jesus, we're going to have to send the crowd away. The crowd's going to be hungry. And you remember what Jesus says? This is one of my very favorite things in all all of the gospel. Jesus looks back at his disciples and says, well, go and feed them then. Go and feed them. Are they hungry? Feed them. That's what we do. And you have them, and they're looking out, and they're like, man, we're homeless. We don't have a place to lay down our heads at night. We're scrounging up bread for ourselves, and you want us to feed 20, 25,000 people out here in a crowd? Are you crazy? But what was Jesus doing? He was, in, he was immersing them into the nature of the mission so that they could learn that the provision and the power did not come from themselves. I think about when Matthew 17, when uh, the, uh, the disciples are unable to cast the demon out of the demon-possessed boy, and they come and they say, Jesus, we've cast demons out of others. Why could we not cast the demon out of this? And Jesus stopped, and he began to teach them on the nature of true faith, confidence in God, and trust in God, teaching them not to depend on themselves, not to depend on their past abilities or their past experiences, but to depend on their present relationship and confidence in the living God. You know what immersion does? You know what an on-the-job training does? You've experienced this yourself. It teaches you what you don't know. 
It tells you all the things that you think you know, but you don't actually know. Because it's one thing to know something philosophically. It's one thing to know something intellectually. It's another thing to have to apply it and live it out with all of the nuances and difficulties and pains and, dif- and hardships that come along the way. It makes me think of well, when I was wanting to learn how to play golf. I was 16, and I did like every you know, golfer does. I went and bought a set for $30 at trade day, a golf clubs, Dunlops. I remember that Collinsville trade day. And I, nobody in my family played golf. Like it wasn't a thing that you did. I just decided it was going to be something I was going to do. And I was, I wanted to do it. So the next step after I bought my $30 set of golf clubs from trade day is I went to the book fair. Okay. Now doesn't that sound awesome? Book fair. I was 16. I was at 10. I was 16. I went to the book fair, the Scholastic Book Fair, and I bought a book on how to, how to swing a golf club that had been put together by Golf Digest, and I devoured that book. I read the whole book on everything that, that they could tell me about how to swing a golf club. Then my, uh, my ag professor, Mr. Smith, he gave me a VHS that had all these different pros. And they, it was a video on them showing you a golf swing and what a golf swing should look like. And what if this goes wrong, this is probably the problem. And if this goes wrong, this is probably the problem. And so you really have this idea. Okay, so I have all of this, this head knowledge in the instruction. I've watched other pros to go do it. And then I took my $30 set of Dunlop golf clubs out on the driving range. And you know what I did? I missed the ball entirely. I couldn't hit it. I, I knew all of the mechanics of the swing. I had watched Payne Stewart swing and had the sweet swing. I'd watched Tom Watson do it. I'd watched all the videos and all the examples and I'd seen. And I thought I was ready to go and to be able to hit the golf ball and take up a career in golf, like probably going to go ahead and go pro and just go ahead and knock that out, you know. And then I get on the driving range and I can't even hit the ball. And when I do hit the ball, it's not even going on down the driving range. Like I'm hitting people that are standing behind me. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's how we learn, though, isn't it? We need instruction, but we need more than instruction. We need example, but we need more than example. We need practice, and we need a lot of practice. Y'all, that is the kind of teaching that we need in the life of Iron City Baptist Church. We need people who are willing to pay the price to teach, but to do more than teach. To instruct, but to do more than to instruct. To set an example, but to do more than set an example. To get in the lives of other people and to deploy them and to bring them back and to help them overcome all the difficulties and all the failures and all of the the stumbles and the falls that happen along the way of the disciples' path. Haven't you fallen in your pursuit of Jesus? Haven't you needed someone to dust you off? Who is going to dust off the next generation? Who is going to dust off those who are falling and, and, and trying to pursue Jesus alone? Who is going to be there? Y'all, that's why God put us together. Do you remember why he said we should not forsake the gathering of the saints? It's so that we might spur one another on to good works, so that we can keep on keeping on together, so that we can teach one another what it means to be a follower, a disciple, a learner. Of Jesus by being teachers ourselves. So we see that we are to teach how Jesus taught. Not only that, we are to teach why Jesus taught, why Jesus taught. So I have in my mind there that second phrase there. So teaching them, that's what we just talked about. How are we to teach? We're to teach the way that Jesus taught. We're to teach by, by instruction, by illustration, by immersion. But now we're not just to teach them so that they can know. We're to teach them so that they will observe. So that they will observe. It's kind of a strange way to put it, isn't it? We don't often tell, child, I want you to observe what I have told you. 
You know, like we, we don't often frame it up. Often throughout the, the, new, the, the Gospels in the New Testament, that word is translated as keep, to keep what I have told you. But what I think, what I want you to see is that embedded within that word observe, embedded within this understanding of keep, is more than mere behavior modification. It's more than just doing what Jesus told you to do because you feel like if you don't, you're going to get thumped off the earth. It's something that is to be the result of transformation. That is, that what Jesus has in mind as he instructs his disciples to teach others to observe his words and observe what he has commanded, is he is saying to teach them that they might be transformed. Teach them that they might be born again. Teach them that they might be made new and given a new heart and a new nature. That is, teach them so that they'll do more than pass the test. You know, we have a lot of uh, people here in our church, I'm thinking about you, Luke, man. I'm so impressed with people that are bilingual. Uh, Luke often, he actually did it last week, uh, is able to translate our sermons for people that come and visit our church and only speak Spanish. And it's really, really impressive just to be able to interact with folks that are bilingual. I think about Jeffrey over in, in uh, uh, Swaziland. He speaks seven languages. Seven, that's a gift from the Lord, y'all. That's, that's amazing. Seven, seven different languages and dialects. But me, not so much. Okay, I took two years of Spanish in high school. I took two semesters of Spanish in college, and I can't speak, read, or write a lick of Spanish. Anybody else ever have an experience like that? You take a class, and you go through the class, and you maybe even do well in the class, and then when the class is over, you look back and you think, I don't know that I learned a single thing from that class. I couldn't tell you the first thing about biology, you know, or whatever it is. Why is that? I know the case for me is I just did what I had to do to pass the test. I just did what I had to do so that it would be good enough for me to pass the test, get the grade, and move on. That all I wanted was to be able to get that piece of paper on my back wall and get all this done with. And I think very often it's that kind of thinking that has begun to infect our relationship and pursuit of Jesus as disciples. That we have taken our experience with our education into our discipleship groups. And we've said, I'll memorize the verse so long as I can just get it over with, rehearse it to the group, and move on. I'll take notes during the sermon just so that I'll, I'll, I'll feel good about my experience in church. But then I'll totally disregard the notes. I'll listen to teaching and lessons and sermons and works on anxiety. But then as far as applying it to my life, I'm just as anxious as I've ever been. Why? Because we're aiming at behavior modification. We're aiming at temporary change. We're aiming at controlling what we can control. And it is more than this that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is not looking for disciples that can pass a test on religious questions. Jesus is not looking for disciples and children that know all of the answers the way that the Pharisees knew all of the answers. Jesus is looking for disciples that have a righteousness that transcends that of the Pharisees, a righteousness that starts from the inside and is expressed outwardly in their lives, a righteousness that is the outworking of an inward transformation in their lives. I think we can see this if we go back to our word keep. I did a study throughout all of the Gospels to see how it is that the word observe or keep is used. And it's used in the context of obedience, but it's used in a way that I think expresses the kind of transformative obedience that Jesus is calling for in the lives of his disciples. Look at, look in the Gospel of John explicitly. John chapter 8 verse 51 says, Truly, truly, this is Jesus talking, I say to you, if anyone 
keeps my word, there's, there's, the, there's our word, keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what's he talking about here? What's he talking about here? He's talking about life right now. He's talking about life eternal, isn't he? He's talking about that they're never going to t- taste the judgment of God. They're not, never going to taste the anger of God. They're never going to get what their sins deserve. They're not going to taste death. They're going to taste life. They're not going to taste pain. They're going to taste mercy. They're not going to taste condemnation and judgment. They're going to know and taste grace. But he says it's only if you keep his word. You know what this is? This is another way for Jesus to say, everyone who trusts my word. That, 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 that disciples of Jesus obey Jesus because they trust Jesus. Because they trust that what Jesus is saying is the truth. That they, they, they bank their eternity on Jesus because Jesus has said, I am the way, the, tr- the path to, to the truth. I am, uh, I am enter through me and all who enter through me will be one with the Father. And they trust that what Jesus has said is good and right and reasonable. That what Jesus wants for them is what is ultimately best for them. That Jesus' path for life won't just matter one day. It matters today. It matters in what I'm doing right now. That if Jesus has said it, it must be best. It must be right. It must be good. And it must be true. If you think about this, why do you disobey Jesus? Why do you disobey Jesus? Why do you disobey Jesus with your sexuality? Why do you disobey Jesus with your money? Why do you disobey Jesus when it comes to the expenditure of your time? Why, why do you disobey Jesus in the treatment of your wife or your deadbeat dad or, or the raising of your children? Why do you disobey Jesus? It can only be because of mistrust. It can only be because you believe in your heart that your way is a better path to happiness. That your way is a better path to satisfaction. That that your way is a better path, in other words, to life. And so what obedience is, what obedience is, is obedience is an outward expression of an inward trust in the hope that Jesus offers to say that I am convinced that if I bank the entirety of my life on Jesus, however it hurts right now, whatever the costs are right now, whatever the hardships are right now, if I will bank all of my life on Jesus, my joy in Jesus will be so satisfying that all the other happinesses, all the other fleeting joys that this world can offer will be seen as empty in comparison. In other words, our obedience to Jesus right now shows that our faith and our confidence and our trust rests on Jesus. And so that means that it doesn't just matter what that we can trust Jesus in the afterlife. It means that I can trust Jesus today. I can trust Jesus in my marriage. I can trust Jesus in my parenting. I can trust Jesus as, as an employee or an employer. I can trust Jesus in all of life. But we don't just obey because we trust Jesus. Look at what it says in John chapter 14. Our word comes up again. Listen to what Jesus says. I read this uh, in our start with the word before the service. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why else do we obey Jesus? We obey Jesus because we love Jesus. Because we love Jesus. Do you notice what he's saying? He doesn't start with your goodness, does he? He doesn't start with your goodness. In other words, our obedience isn't an expression of how good we are in the image of Jesus. Our obedience to Jesus is not us trying to say, Jesus, look how moral I am. 
Look, look how hard I'm trying. Look at how I'm laboring to exemplify you, Jesus. Jesus, notice me because I'm trying to be good. No, 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 no. Jesus says, if you become enraptured by how good I am, if you become enamored by how good I am, if your mind becomes captivated by how good I am, if your heart loves me, if you are, if you are enthralled with me, if you, are, if you are devoted to me, then you will obey me. You see, obedience is the practical expression of a heart that is devoted to Jesus. Obedience is the practical, real-world expression of a heart that is devoted, that loves Jesus. We often think that Jesus commands us to obey him because he's trying to keep us from things. But that's because we misunderstand the nature of his commandments. That his commandments are not, are, are not uh, developed to keep you away from things that are good for you. They're, they're developed so that they can help concentrate and focus you on the only thing that is good for you. You see, a husband, a husband doesn't, doesn't stay faithful to his wife because she is keeping him from all of the other women. A husband remains faithful to his wife because his heart is so full and satisfied and enthralled and captivated by the goodness of his wife, by his love for his wife, by his devotion to his wife. And that is the picture of the church's relationship with Christ, hearts, minds, so captivated by Christ. We are not being asked to, to give up the world in some sense of sacrifice. We're asked to give up the world because we have found something, a treasure uh, that is far greater, that lifts up our eyes beyond all of these other treasures to something that actually satisfies, actually brings us joy, actually completes our contentment. That we obey Jesus because Jesus is just better. And we know that love with words but no action is not love. That love with flattery but no devotion is not love. And God help us if we live lives that attempt to flatter God but do not live devoted to God. God help us when we, when we give in to all of the tiny, silly little things that this world is trying to call us to love. No, what we must do as disciples of Jesus and what we must train and teach as disciples of Jesus, what our discipleship process must lead to is not people that can pass the test, but people who love Jesus. People who love Jesus with all of their hearts and all of their mind and all of their strength and obey Jesus because they love him so much. That's not all. That's not all. Finally, we see in John chapter 15, he says, if you keep, there's our word again. Do you see this trifecta here? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Maybe you would say, I have no illusions. I have no illusions that in my, my obedience or in my law keeping or, or in my behavior that in some way I can express my goodness. No, 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 no. I can't do this. I can't obey what Jesus is commanding because I'm too weak. I can't do it. You know what Jesus said? That's why I came. That's why I came. I came because you are too weak. But Jesus commands us to keep his commandments in the same way that the vine looks to the branch and commands it to bear fruit. That we, abiding in Christ, are bound to Christ the way that a branch is bound to the vine. And the vine commands the branch to bear fruit. And then what does the vine do? The vine gives the branch its life. The vine gives the branch its strength. 
The vine gives the branch its energy. The vine demands that the branch bear fruit and then the vine gives to the branch everything that it needs so that it is able to bear fruit. And that is the relationship that we have with Jesus, that we are united with Jesus. And Jesus calls us to the obedience of his word. But Jesus gives to us all that it is that he demands from us, that he is the vine pouring into the branch that we might bear fruit by his life, by his strength, by his power, his fruits. See, brothers and sisters, mere rule keeping, that won't do. Passing the test, that won't do. The question is, the question is, have you been transformed? Salvation in the Bible always leads to transformation. And I want you to be honest before God himself with the working of the Holy Spirit under the preaching of his word. Have you really been saved? Have you really been saved? Have you come under the lordship of Christ into your life so that it has transformed your nature and given you a new heart and given you new eyes and a new mind and a new desire? Do you actually love Jesus? That's what I'm asking you. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to obey Jesus? Do you want to be satisfied in Jesus? Do you want to be content in Jesus? Is Jesus the center of your life? Because Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to be a learner of Jesus, you must abide in Jesus. And if you are going to lead other people and make disciples of Jesus and live the life that Jesus has called, you must abide in Jesus. Are you abiding in Jesus? Have you been transformed? And that leads me to my last point this morning, is that we must, we teach what Jesus taught. We teach what Jesus taught. So he says, teaching them to observe, and then he gives us the content. All that I have commanded you. That's the content that we're to teach. You know, I hear it said very often, and, and, I, and I've said it, and I know, understand it, and, and I don't even disagree with the premise, but I, I, think, I think our language can be better. But I hear it said a lot that what you need to do as a disciple of Jesus is you need to reproduce yourself. You need to reproduce yourself. And I think that's exactly wrong. I think that's exactly wrong. Because I think what we very often hear when, we, when, when that's said to us is we need to go and we need to take all of the collection of our worldview and ideology and we need to pass it on to someone else. We need to take our political views and we need to pass those on. We need to take our, uh, our, uh, our opinions on every subject matter and we need to pass those on. We need to take our life philosophies and things that have been successful for us and allowed us to accumulate wealth or any measure of success, and we need to pass those things on. And Jesus doesn't say one thing about any of that. What does Jesus say? Don't pass on what you think. Don't pass on what what you feel right about. Don't pass on your political ideology. Don't pass on your philosophical statements. Don't pass on what has made you financially successful. Pass on what I have commanded you. That the goal here is not to reproduce Cody. The goal here is to reproduce Christ. Christ. That what what we are to imitate is not our pastor. We are to imitate Jesus. Jesus. I've had the opportunity over the last year or so to to be able to to speak at a number of discipleship conferences. 
And man, you can go and you, you work and you try to put together something that's going to inspire people forward to go and to, to make disciples and to get in the game and to live out the Great Commission. And, and you pour your heart out and you've got, you, know, you feel like you make all these like high-level connections and they're going to go. And, you're gonna, and every single stinking time, somebody raises their hand and they ask the same question. Every group I've ever led. Yeah, what, what you got? Uh, I'm looking for a curriculum. Um, do you have a curriculum? And I understand what, what, what they're saying. Like, we've got to have curriculum, right? We've got to have content. We've got to have something, something to teach. But that's emblematic of what we've done to follow and teach the way of Jesus. We've reduced it to a book study. We've reduced it to a curriculum. We've reduced it to a something that you can knock out in three, four, five weeks that we can fit with efficiency into the schedule of our busy, everyday lives. And what Jesus is calling for us is to take up our cross and follow him with all of our energy and all of our passion and all of our heart and all of our zeal. Here's what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us when he says, all that I have commanded you. What did he command them to do? Andrew Murray says the entirety of the Christian life can be summed up in just two words, like Christ. Love like Christ. Live like Christ. We as Christians become so enamored with Jesus' birth and so enamored with Jesus' death and resurrection and with good reason that too often we miss the fact that the man lived a life that set a pattern and paradigm for kingdom living for me and for you and the life is in Jesus' life is our curriculum that we are to teach and pass on and abide by ourselves. How are we to live? We are to live the way that Jesus lived. What kind of or doctor or, or Honda worker am I supposed to be? What kind of pastor am I supposed to be? What kind of mom am I supposed to be? How would Jesus live that life? How would Jesus live your life if he were in your situation? And how can we know? Because he actually lived. And Jesus established a curriculum for us. And he says, no, no, no. Don't go and copy your method of parenting. Don't copy your financial keys to success. Don't copy what is philosophically sensible to you. Look at my life. My life is the establishment of a curriculum for my disciples and my church for all eternity going forward. In fact, in fact, that's where the name Christian comes from. You know that, right? You know where the name Christian came from? It was an insult given by the Roman Empire to this new movement called the Way. And the word Christian, it means literally little Christs. We got all these little Christs running around here. All these people who are trying to model and live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. See, in Jesus' day, the way discipleship worked is you had a group of disciples and they would live with their teacher full time. And they literally went everywhere that he went. If he went to the bathroom, they went to the bathroom with him. If he went to bed, they went to bed. They followed him around so that they could literally memorize every step that he took every single day. They would memorize the number of steps that he took on the Sabbath. They would watch the way that he interacted with his children and the way that he uh, was with his wife and how he worshipped in the temple. They would listen to the way that he talked to, to his opposition and people that disagreed with him. And the goal was to so memorize how many steps he took and when he took his breaks and how he ate his meals and how he treated his wife and how he raised his kids was so that they could perfectly duplicate it in their own lives. Do you hear the amount of humility that takes? 
to drain my life of my own opinions, to drain my life of my own ways, so that I could imitate the way of my master, so that I could trust and believe that I have found a better way and to live that out in my life. And that is what is in Paul's mind when he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That what we need, Iron City, are disciples of Jesus and disciple makers of Jesus who will walk so closely with Jesus that we memorize the way of Jesus and we memorize the steps of Jesus and we go where Jesus goes and we act the way that Jesus acts and we do what Jesus does so that the world can look to us and not see me or see you but see Christ. But see Christ. So let's go. Let's go. As disciples of Jesus, as learners of Jesus, let's go. And let's teach them to observe all that he has commanded us. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church. And we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.